One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, fellow time travelers. It's great to have you with me again for another journey through time and space. Uh, Before we get started... As I always remind myself to do, I want to say thank you to everyone who has signed up to this Patreon site. Uh, It's that support that comes from the Patreon podcasts that makes all of the other podcasts possible. So to everyone who's part of that community, thank you a thousand times. Uh, If you're not a member yet and you want to join or become part of the family, go to patreon.com and search for me by name, Neil Oliver. You have to part with a bit of cash. A bit of cash every month or by the year. It's uh, cheaper if you go in all in for the year. Uh, and there's there's just a variety of content. Vodcasts every week, question times, competitions, um, and also connections between one another. You know, the, the, there's information sharing goes on within the, within the community. And it's a community or a family that's growing all the time. So come and join. Okay, it's now time to strap yourselves into the time machine as we set off for another episode of my love letter to the world. Recorder. Microphone. Action. Grasped the concept that time might have no beginning and no end. Cut off, separated and following their own path. Adapting, evolving and building powerful civilizations. The flowering of art and religion and the construction of huge, breathtaking cities. Great leaps in science and engineering were made, side by side with human sacrifice and a preoccupation with death. Their great thinkers grappled with the concept of deep time, sensing that time has no beginning and no end. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of eliminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the world. Hi, Neil. In the last episode, we saw a great Indian leader rise to power and shine a burst of light, albeit briefly, on the subcontinent. Which moment in history are we travelling to this week? Hi, Paul. Uh, Well, over the course of this one, the story of the world, my story of the world, uh, has been gradually expanding. This week, we really step on the gas, making a great geographical leap, hopping continents. We're in the Western Hemisphere, in the Americas, to explore the extraordinary civilizations uh, that developed uh, and, and the moment, indeed, when they grasped the theory of deep time. This is an interesting, different one. We've leapt across the... Atlantic Ocean, I suppose, really, we're, for the first time we're considering the Americas. So this is a whole new a whole new departure for the love letter to the world. It's also an interesting moment that we are in right now, 
just for the record, this is within a few days of the death of Queen Elizabeth II. So the whole the whole country, in fact, large parts of the world have been uh, thrown into a state of flux by the death of probably undeniably the most famous person on the planet, certainly the most famous woman. And it's hard to imagine any man or woman having the opportunity to be quite as famous ever again. And the fact that we're talking about a death, you know, any man's death diminishes me for I am involved in mankind and therefore never sent to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Any death uh, should rightly prompt a bit of internal analysis and a bit of a bit of thought and a bit of speculation about about life, about death. Um, so it's quite a, it's quite a time just now. So I, I, I think it's it's opposite. It's appropriate that the moment in the story of the world is about uh, a people or perhaps an individual in the beginning, contemplating the nature of time. Time, the coming and going, the whole concept of what it means to be human and alive has preoccupied the species, well, from a time beyond the reach of memory. There's various instances where we seem to see manifestations of that thought process. In a a passage grave, a, a burial chamber like Newgrange, for example, in Ireland, in the valley of the River Boyne, on some of the stones there are carved triskels or triskelions, which are those spiralling, interconnecting, spooling threads. They're interpreted in various ways. They don't just occur at Newgrange, they occur all over the megalithic world. And they're quite often interpreted as being representative of the ceaseless unspooling of time. Time without a beginning, time without an end. And it's always fascinating to note that at various times in different places, different individuals and different societies have obviously given a bit of thought to what, whatever you call it, time. What is, what is it? Is there such a thing? What is it? We all experience it. We're all finite. Uh, so a preoccupation with time. I think everyone becomes a bit preoccupied with time from time to time. So let's get to the to the place in question. Our species is, as we've said more than once, is somewhere between two hundred and three hundred thousand years old. The the modern consensus, and there's a difficult word anyway, is that all life started in Africa. All human life came out of Africa. Various iterations, Homo erectus, all of it, Homo sapiens. We, we all come out of Africa. Some people dispute that, but the point being that. If it did come out of Africa, then the the population spreads up into the Near East, into the Old World, into Europe. One of the last movements was into the Americas. And that that seems to have happened by some or other members of our species something like 25,000 years ago. And they go across what we know as the the Bering Strait. That's that, that separation between Russia and the East and into America. And it's difficult to note because it was 25,000 years ago, perhaps uh, there may have been a land bridge there. It may have been a straightforward walk, dry shod from one continent to the next. Or if there was water there, but but shallower, there, there may have been the, the, the opportunity for a kind of a, you know, leapfrogging from island to island. You know, maybe they, in boats, small boats, people, maybe they could see the, the next landfall 
gradually making them across. It's not known. It's, it's too remote in time. We don't know exactly how it was done. Once that contact was made with the Americas, the sea levels did rise to the point where the, the Bering Strait was a, a considerable body of water. And it, it looks as though there was then, you know, little in the way of new arrivals until the Vikings, you know, the, the Vikings uh, crossed from Scandinavia to some sort of landfall in, in North America, maybe in the, let's say, the 10th century AD. So there was a long period where the Americas were isolated, I suppose. And those millennia of isolation allowed the peoples of the Americas to follow their own paths. And that made all the difference. Jared Diamond, he's a, a, a polymath writer, he pointed out that when you look at the continents of planet Earth, they're all in portrait orientation, if you like. You know, on your, on your phone, you know, you do the portrait shot or you do a landscape shot. So you, you've got the Americas and you've got Africa and they're, and they're in that upright portrait position. Europe is in landscape, which means that uniquely there's a, a sort of a 9,000 mile landmass that enables the spread of the same animals and the same crops from east into west because they're, they're within the same environmental and climatic zones. So the same animals can move and the same crops can move and be planted. The Americas are different because there's such a depth of latitudes. You get species, animals and plants that are restricted. So there's not the same amount of mixing north and south. So you get isolations in that great depth from, from North America, the Arctic zone, all the way down to Terra del Fuego in the deep south of South America. So it's a, it's a different situation. It's a different question for the human species to deal with. So for that reason, amongst others, you get a great variety of cultures and ways of life down through the millennia. Obviously, in the far north, where people were coming in at first, you get the, well, now called the Inuit. When I was growing up, those peoples were called Eskimo. But that, that word has fallen from favour and it's now Inuit. But the Inuit developed a, a way of life. They adapted to, well, some of the harshest environments on Earth in the extreme cold. Further south, uh, in the vast, wide landmass of North America, there evolved uh, well, a, a hunter-gatherer way of life, which persisted right up into the modern era. On the eastern seaboard of North America, settled farming eventually evolved completely on its own, with, obviously with no contact with the old world. This is new world stuff. But settled farming uh, developed and, and lasted until contact with the Europeans in the 16th century. And then it was in the aftermath of contact with the European peoples that the great horse culture of the Native Americans evolved. It was the Europeans that brought the horse back in to North America. The horse had been extinct in the Americas for thousands of years when the Europeans brought them back in. And that led to the, the famously horse-based Native American culture. So you've got all of this, all of this going on all over this vast territory. Inuit, the hunter-gatherers, the settled farmers. These are ways of life, but by no means would anthropologists generally regard any of it as what we would call civilization. It doesn't meet the bar of civilization, okay? N not so far. However, 
Further south, in Central America, or Mesoamerica as it's also known, somewhere around the end of the second millennium BC, so sort of nudging towards a thousand years before the birth of Christ, in that central Mesoamerican zone, you've got a people who are called Olmec, O-L-M-E-C, and they, have a, they seem to have had a heartland around Veracruz in, in what we know as Mexico. In that way of things, they probably didn't call themselves Olmec. There is a sort of basic truism around the world that people tend to be labelled by the people who encounter them. We, we tend to lose track of what people called themselves, if they called themselves anything apart from us. They are labelled later by the people who encountered them, maybe even by the people who came and replaced them. But it seems likely that it was people who encountered the Olmecs who called them Olmec. And Olmec, etymologically, means something like the rubber people, believe it or not, because they were exploiting the sap of trees to make rubber. And in particular, the Olmecs made rubber balls, solid, hard, big, nearer to a football, say, than a tennis ball. Solid, hard. And with those, they played what is still known as the Mesoamerican ball game. There's still a modern iteration of the Mesoamerican ball game, which may or may not be close to what was being played 3,000 years ago or even earlier by the Olmecs. What is the ball game? The Mesoamerican ball game, well, a mystery surrounds. As I say, there's a, there's a, there's a modern version of it. In, in that part of the world, there are some, some groups that still play a version. And it, it tends to look a bit like a, a sort of a racquetball kind of a handball thing, bouncing a solid ball back and forth off of a, like squash, you know, off a wall and, and keeping it going, bouncing like that. And then there's also a kind of a, you, you get a, a kind of a stone hoop that projects, not in the way that a basketball hoop does, but up the other way. And at least if the, the ball had to pass through that, a bit like Quidditch, you know, the big, but so the ball had to pass through that way. But there are various forms of it, but it, it looks as though the ball game, well, it's, it is very interesting, it goes, it goes back into the depths of time and it, it looks as though it had great ritual significance. So on the one hand, it might have been a game that children played and children might have had a version of the ball game because all kids play ball games. They're universal. But the ball game looks as though it, it had great ritual significance. In some parts of Mesoamerica, it may have been used as a kind of um, a substitute for battle, like a proxy battle, so that where you had two neighbouring groups, and maybe for whatever reason they were at loggerheads and it was all about to come to blows, there may have been a means by which you had conflict resolution via the ball game. Let's imagine maybe the two kings or their champions, nominated figures, heroes, came forward to play the ball game. It looks as though the ball game in this iteration was in a court that was walls, slanting walls on either side, maybe not parallel, and there was something involving you know, bouncing the big, the big hard ball back and forth and using your hip. The main point of contact may have been you know, an action hitting it with the, with the side of the hip, side of the body. 
in the jungle in the Olmec heartland that you find these um, massive carved heads some of them weigh 50 tons I mean enormous enormous things and the carved head is wearing a, like a some sort of helmet a bit like a bit like a cycling helmet, you know that that kind of lattice thing that you don't. So not necessarily like a motorbike helmet, something less than that. And it's, they've been interpreted as the as the carved heads of kings, Olmec kings, playing this game. The other thing to bear in mind, you surely know, everyone kind of knows that in that part of the Americas, in the in the central point and down into the territory of Incas, it was all about human sacrifice. The Olmecs sacrificed men, women, and children. The Aztecs sacrificed men, women, and children. The Incas sacrificed men, women, and children. It was a blood-soaked, terrifying, cruel set of civilizations. And it looks as though some aspects of the ball game were bloody as well. Sometimes severed heads may have been used in lieu of rubber balls or at the very least, from time to time, the ball may have represented a human head. So the truth of it is, it's also lost in time that this is mostly speculation. It's not clear, but the way in which you find in graves figurines of ball players, the great colossal heads that seem to be... It was clearly enmeshed. It's right through the Olmec civilization. So if our civilization is, is crazy about football... The preoccupation with the ball game in, in Central America may have gone beyond. If you are playing the ball game, you may have been engaged in the maintenance of the cosmic way of things. The ball may have represented the sun. That by playing the game, you were keeping the cosmos going uh, and you were taking part in the regeneration of life. It looks as though the ball game may have had profound ritual significance. It's certainly fascinating. I, you know, so, so to move on from the ball game, you've got the okay, the basics of the society all across Central America. The subsistence was maize, like corn, corn on the cob. That's what they were growing, and to grow it, they had to carve fields out of virgin forest. Now, this is monumental effort. This is the, the old-growth forest of the world. Enormous trees that had to be felled. You had to get the roots out of the ground just to clear the fields so that you could plant some crops. And because of the nature of the soil, after just maybe three, four harvests, three, four years, not much longer, the soil would be done. And so they would have to cut down more trees and, and start again. enormously labour-intensive and also they were clearing the fields to build cities and great ritual sites. Uh, in the territory of the Olmecs, after the Olmecs came different groups, Toltecs, the Totona, uh, there was a great city called Teotihuacan, which is, was located about 30 miles from Mexico City, modern Mexico City. And somewhere between, let's say, 100 years BC and maybe 600 years AD, it was home to between 150,000 and 250,000 people, which would have made it at that time the fifth or sixth biggest city on earth. An enormous 
conurbation. As well as houses, they were putting up enormous pyramids or ziggurats on the scale of the Egyptian pyramids. Massive structures. Teotihuacan fell fell into disuse in the 7th century AD for reasons unknown. But because of all the warring and the appetite for human sacrifice, it, it may just have been a symptom of febrile times that Teotihuacan and the people there moved away, began to do something else. So that's this territory of the Olmecs. Further to the east, you've got where we would know Guatemala, Honduras. You have the Maya, the Mayan civilization. Let's say from about 100 AD, or, or, or the time of the birth of Jesus Christ, through to about 900 AD. So they're, they're later. This is a, a, a later civilization. And the ruins left behind by the Maya are not cities so much. It's more like huge ritual centers for ziggurats and temples and tombs, and they were all being served by populations of, of some sort of priestly class. Along the same lines as ancient Egypt, so where at places like at Memphis, they may have been more ritual rather than places where people lived. You know, so in ancient Egypt, most people lived out in sort of rural areas in small settlements, and the big centres were where the king had his court and where the a, a priestly class were involved in all, all sorts of rituals. So it may have been more like that. All of it has been swallowed by... You know, there's, these, these enormous buildings are still there in the forests. You know, at the start of uh, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, where Indiana goes into that place where he has to do the swap over with a little gold idol with a bag of sand. They, you know, he comes out into the jungle. It's that kind of that kind of landscape that we're talking about. And the whole thing was blood-soaked all the time. One civilization after another was just soaked in blood. Before the Olmecs, then into the Olmecs, then the Toltecs and the Totona, and then the Maya and the Aztecs and the Incas, there seems to have been a, a running theme that life itself was irrigated by blood. That, that was like the bottom line. It was bloodletting that would keep returning life. You know, when the Nile flooded every year, you know, Egypt was made fertile. Well, in, in Central America, it was, the, it was the blood of people. Constant, incessant bloodletting and sacrifice, opening people up, tearing out living hearts, cutting off heads. It's all about blood. And it, it seems to have been bound up with an idea that the gods had done the same thing. So there's a, a, a hierarchy of gods, from paramount gods and then lesser gods. And the lesser gods had had to sacrifice their blood to energise the sun, to give life, to, to give light and heat from the sun. It was all based on the blood of the gods offering themselves up in sacrifice. And so it made sense to these Mesoamerican populations that humans had to do the same thing, that if life was to be kept going, it had to be constantly irrigated with fresh blood. So you had these hellish cultures whereby different tribes and would be at war with one another, and that the objective was to grab prisoners, captives, and take them alive, and then these living captives could be sacrificed. It's happening all the time. There's a preoccupation with death. In the, the heartland of the Olmecs, they were replaced by the Toltecs, and then again they were replaced. Sometime in the 14th century AD, you've got the Aztecs. Everyone's heard of the Aztecs. Always bloodshed, always taking captives, always sacrifice. Further south into the territory of the Incas, more of the same. It's a very different way of life. It's a very different 
concept. Now, here's the moment, you know, in the story of the world, there are a hundred moments. In that world of blood, in that world of preoccupation with death, someone, some individual, some group became preoccupied with time. In amongst all of that, someone started counting days. One day more, one day less. The Olmecs did it. The Olmecs counted time. And every South American civilization after the Olmecs did it too. But in that way of things, it seems that somewhere in the depths of time, somebody started it. It occurred to someone to count the days. And in amongst it all, Olmecs, Toltecs, Aztecs, Incas, the Maya took this idea to its finest flowering. They particularly specialised in contemplating time. And all of this came back to the attention of the modern world. In the last few years running up to 2012, newspapers started carrying stories that the Mayan calendar predicted that the world would end at precisely 11 minutes past 11 on December the 21st, 2012. Because this calendar had been found and it seemed to count all the days up until that date. 21st December 2012 and so the <laughs> I suppose the zealots decided that it was here we go this is a millenarian end of the world here we go you know the Mayans say the world's going to end in 2012 it's a bit like the millennium bug you know that everything was going to change after the year 2000 didn't obviously nothing happened on the 21st of December 2012 well the world certainly didn't end the confusion was understandable up to a point the, the Mayan calendar in question had three counts within one like three wheels in one, within a clock mechanism almost. Two of the cycles counted days in, in slightly different ways. The bigger, longer count reached back into the past for thousands of years and looked forward into the future for thousands of years, all the way up to 2012. It did finish in 2012, but it wasn't about the ending of the world it had predicted that in 2012, they were looking all the way ahead to the year 2012 from their time and imagining that in 2012, one cycle, one long cycle of many thousands of years would come to an end and another cycle would begin. So it wasn't about the ending of the world. It was about the ending of one cycle of counting prior to the beginning of another Now, we've all, you know, in our cult, you'll have heard of the dawning of the age of Aquarius. This speculation that we come to the end of one great cycle of, of millennia, an unimaginable expanse of time, and that, that finishes and another one starts. That is a recurrent theme. Only the Hindus, we've touched, we've, we've been in the subcontinent more than once in the story of the world, and the Hindu tradition did something similar. There was a concept of deep time. You know, Carl Sagan, he of Cosmos, noted and wrote about the fact that the way the Hindus measured time and imagined time was as close as you like to the way modern science and cosmology counts all the seconds from the Big Bang until now. The Hindus, however they did it, arrived at a similar concept of time across millions and billions of years however they did that well the Maya did it as well 
the Maya arrived at the same thought and had probably inherited it anyway from elsewhere in the within the, the, the previous civilizations in Central America. So that is the moment in question. In the last centuries before the birth of Jesus Christ, some or other thinker grasped the concept that time might have no beginning and no end. And that's a big thought. A magical city lost in time, guarded by deadly crossbows and a terracotta army. In a land separated by great mountain ranges, unrest rumbling for centuries, dynasties rising and falling over a territory larger than the United States of America. The leader who brought peace, stability and cohesion gave this land his name, China. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It'd be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel, simply called the Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it. Get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book, It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. Oh look, Paul, can you see what's right behind my head? Just... There's the YouTube plan. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.